Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 18. I spend my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men. God tests them, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so does the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better then that man should rejoice in his works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then I returned and considered and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of the oppressor, there's power, but they have no comfort. Therefore... I praised the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. This is the word of God for the people of God to which we say thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you that we have before us this opportunity, despite some technical difficulties, despite whatever we may have brought into this place, despite anything, what an opportunity we have, a privilege we have with your word open to be spoken to by you, the creator of heaven and earth, for most of us in this room, our Father in heaven. So we come to you now asking that you would bless this time in a special way so that as we leave here, we would know that that happened, that we would know that you spoke to us. We pray that you would help us understand your word. Pray, God, you would enable me to communicate your word. Jesus, I pray that you would help me make much of you because you're so worth it. You're so worth seeing and understanding. So, uh, Holy Spirit, would you accomplish that work here? Would you fill me? Would you take my preparation and whatever I haven't prepared enough of, whatever it may be, I pray you would take this offering and use it for your glory to speak to your people. Give us ears to hear what you want to say, Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, then. You know, there, there's some passages of Scripture that it's a little tougher to say, and this is the Word of God for the people of God, and you go... Thanks be to God. And it's kind of tough when it's something that ends like this. Better are the dead more than the living. Actually, better off is the person who's never existed because of how tough life is. Okay, so let's, let's back up a little bit. This is quite a problematic, difficult text. We want to get some context here. There is some really interesting stuff going on. Now, now to back up, I want to go right to where we started here a moment ago. Again, none of us woke up this morning keen on wanting to think about or be taught on the topic that Solomon is leading us to here in this passage, the topic of death. And it's not out of the ordinary for Solomon. As if you've been coming week after week, there are a variety of things that Solomon has been leading us to think about that are, are rather difficult. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily preferable. Um, but we've been learning along the way that it's worth our study, because though it might not be preferable, it's still profitable. It's still profitable. It's beneficial. It might not be good for our preferences, but it's good for our soul to really go over some of the things he has been saying. And I want to just say that this topic here of death, for example, is one, this, you know, un, maybe kind of this avoided topic, is one of many reasons why, I just want to say as a community, we want to study the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. From time to time, we are going to do topical series where we are going to focus on unique things that the Spirit of God is doing in our church. I mean, this year alone, we've, we've, we've done a series on prayer. 
We did a series on theology, knowing God. We did a series on discipleship to Jesus, our vision. But the goal of our church is to have the majority of our diet being the, the Bible itself, reading through and studying through the Bible. Um, and that is because of what 2 Timothy 3 says, that all Scripture, even Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that says really hard things, is inspired by God and is profitable. What that means essentially is that as you leave here today, the one thing that you can take to the bank of, of what you heard is what we just read. Everything we just read, this is God's word. He's inspired it. And we believe that so much that we are going to study as much of it as possible. And this is uh, called, in, in, in sort of the world of, of Bible study, it's called expository study or expository preaching. To, to, to exposit or to do expositional preaching is to not simply come up and give an opinion about something, but it's to simply read the Bible, and my job being to help us understand by the Spirit of God what it says and how it reveals Jesus to us. That's expositional study. And again, the reason why we do that is laid out really well by Tim Keller in his book, Preaching. Okay, so this is so, somewhat of a little... Um, What's the word? A little preface here. Um, in Tim Keller's book on preaching, uh, communicating faith in an age of skepticism, he says that in expository preaching and study for a church, it enables God, when we do it this way, we study through the Bible primarily, it enables God to set the agenda for a Christian community. He goes on to say it this way. Expository preaching helps us, as, as Jesus followers, resist the pressure to adapt our messages to much, uh, much to culture's preferences, and even our own preferences. Expository study brings us to subjects, like death, happy Sunday, good morning. It brings us to subjects that we would rather not touch on and might not ever choose to address. Like, I don't know if we were to sit in the, in, the, in the boardroom and go, okay, what kind of topical series do we want to do this year? Let's do like a six-week topical series on dying, you know? Like death, that, that'll really bring them in, you know? Like, let, let's talk about death. No, but expository preaching leads us there. It's studying it that way, studying the whole counsel of God's word. Um, he goes on to say this, that when you study the word this way, it can keep you, listen to this, from pet themes, and gets you into a greater range of passages and subjects. So I just wanted to give us some context as to why we would gather here on a Sunday morning <laughs> and spend our time thinking about something so depressing. And so we'll hope to smile a little bit throughout this, but it's because we believe this, that God's word is inspired. And without studying his word, what we're lended with is a limited understanding of who he is. And what we're left with is just some hobby horses, some, some kind of pet focuses. And I'll, and I'll confess to you right now, I have my pet focuses. I have my hobby horses. You, you probably know what they are. You know, you hear me talk about them all the time. You know, Jesus at the center, community, you know, all my little catchphrases, right? Like, there, there's a way to sort of use God's word to say what we want to say rather than study God's word to see what God has said. And when we do it that way, we're led to some difficult places like this. But let me say that it's more than just learning things in the Bible, you know, that we wouldn't if we were just teaching topically. 2 Timothy 3 also says this, that all of Scripture is sufficient to reveal Jesus to us. It's been said, you will not be able to find a page in the Bible that Jesus is not on. Maybe it doesn't mention him by name, but it, it at least picture him or foreshadow him. Or like Solomon does in this passage, it'll set up like the volleyball set for a big spike in Jesus' name. Like, that's often what you find. And so this is also why we want to study the whole Bible, because the Bible is a portrait of Jesus. I don't know about you, but since Jesus is the reigning king of kings and lord of lords... And since he is unrivaled in that royalty, and since he is my Savior and my Lord, and since he is coming again, I want to get to know all of him. I want to behold. I don't want to just behold a little part of him. And, and so today we're led to see Jesus in a, hopefully, a greater and a deeper light. We want to see Jesus today in light of death. Maybe not a preferable topic, but a topic that I believe will lead us to appreciate who Jesus is all the more. Amen? So that was a little extra for you, okay? Um, 
Now, as we get into this passage, that is where Solomon is taking us. The title of my message this morning is aptly named, Dealing with Death. We want to talk about dealing with death this morning. Dealing with death. Um, the reason why Solomon leads us here is because in one way or another, we're going to find that every human being is dealing with death. Whether we choose to or not. We are all in some way or another, whether we choose to or not, dealing with death. Whether that's our own death, whether it's the death of a close friend, a family member, whether it's the death of our favorite character on our favorite TV show. We deal with death on a regular basis. But I think what Solomon is going to challenge us with today is whether or not we're dealing with it in a healthy way. A healthy way. So let's look at what Solomon has to say to us this morning about death. First, we'll, first kind of part of this is we're going to look at Solomon dealing with death. Let's look at Solomon dealing with death here. The first thing that we see is that Solomon points out in death is the reality of man's mortal condition. This is where Solomon starts. Again, happy Sunday. Good to see you. God bless you, Jehovah Jireh, okay? Ecclesiastes 3, verse 18, Solomon points out the reality of man's mortal condition. He says, I turned my heart concerning, and I said in my heart concerning the sons of men, concerning, notice this, the condition of the sons of men, that God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them, as one dies, so does the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals. Here it is again, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Now, this is interesting for Solomon to make this observation, uh, because this isn't new for him, right? Along the way, Solomon has, has been quite privy to talk about how is the great equalizer, right? He, he said it this way in Ecclesiastes 9. We're going to look at it, but he, he'll go on to say this. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked. That event is death. To the good, the clean, and the unclean. To him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifices. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. He says it earlier in chapter, chapter 1. He says, you know, I, I started thinking about how much wisdom I used in my life, and I, and I noticed how me and the fool are both going to die, and I asked myself, why didn't I just live like a fool? You know? I mean, it's not going to keep me from death. I mean, he's been speaking about this sort of fatal thinking. Uh, and it's an interesting, an interesting concept. I mean, in our culture, I don't know if you've ever seen this bumper sticker, but it's like, he who dies with the most toys wins. And Solomon's like, no. <laughs> He who dies with the most toys dies, you know, the same as the guy with the least amount of toys, you know. And so Solomon has been keen to say death is this great equalizer among men. Whether you're righteous or not, whether you're wealthy or not, the same event happens to us all. But now Solomon takes it a step further. He goes, you know what, not only are all men alike, but all creatures are alike. He goes, yeah, let me add a dimension to this. Humans, you're just like hippopotamuses, you know, essentially. You're just like the beasts of the earth. You're just like the creatures of this world. Because just like them, you came from the dust, that's Genesis, the creation account, and you're going to return to the dust. Interesting, right? Notice what he said specifically about death. He says this. He says that they all, all, all man, all creatures have one breath. You see that? What a great definition of life at the end of the day. Life is what do you do with the one breath you have? Now it's continuous inhales and exhales along the way, I get that, but this idea of one breath is the full extent of your life. Think about God breathing life into Adam. It's life. And there's only one deposit of it. This is, this is, again, that great equalizer. It doesn't matter how many you have of anything else. The one thing we all have in common is we all have the same amount of life. We have one, right? That's what Solomon is saying. And notice what he says as he describes this nature of man. Again, he's, he's looking at the moral condition of man. The word mortality, it simply means subject to death. 
He's looking at our condition. This is, you know, not new news to you that uh, every person in this room, your physical body has an expiration date. And some of you, like, you start to feel it as you get older, too. Like, I think, okay, this thing's expiring, right? Like, even 31, I'm like, I need a chiropractor already. It's like the expiration. You know, David talked about the importance of saying, God, teach me to do what? Number my days. I'm mortal. I'm subject to death. Now, uh, it's interesting, the, the, the biblical reference that Solomon uses to describe man's mortality he harkens back to a very significant moment in history when he says this. At the end of verse 20, he says, all are going to go to the same place, back to the dust that they came from. And these words are borrowed from the very words of God, who, when facing Adam and Eve after they had turned their back and failed to trust him and trusted in themselves rather than God, which is at the very heart of what sin is, I trust myself and my own reason, my own knowledge of what's good and evil over what God says. Adam and Eve hide, which is what sin produces, shame. They try to cover themselves, which is also what sin tries to do, hide and cover it ourselves, right? And God shows up and he says, here is the results of this of this con- the consequence of this action. It's death. Death enters the world. That's what, that's what Romans tells us. Romans 5.12 says that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. I think that last part, for everyone sinned, is important. Lot, I think a lot of us are going to be like, come on, Adam. No, messed that up for us. And the, the truth of this is we've all messed it up for ourselves. Created in God's very image to live a life of trusting him, We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were created from the dust. We were never created to go back to the dust. But sin enters the world, and that's what God says to Adam and Eve. From the dust you came to the dust you're going to go, your new condition, mortal. You're going to die because of sin. And I think this is a good thing for Solomon to have us be thinking about, because especially here in the West, Uh, We have sort of a way here in our modern culture to shield ourselves from our own mortality. Like, often the times that we think about death the most is, again, watching our favorite show. And usually death in the show, it's like, it's, it's romanticized, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you cry a little bit, oh, and they died, you know, and they sacrificed. And there's this sort of desensitization, right, that can happen through that shielding. And this is a very modern thing that's happened. I mean, uh, throughout the centuries, death was very central to the life of, of societies and people. There, there weren't hospitals where you would quarantine the death, uh, the, the, the sick, rather, and the dead. There, there wasn't as much modern medicine. It was very common to be around death day in and day out. Now, I'm not saying, like, that's how it should be, you know. That's weird if I would think that, right? Like, you just, we need to die around each other more. That's weird, okay? But the point of that is this. I think through our shielding ourselves with modern medicine, and we kind of push that aside, what, it, what that shielding can create in our lives is this sort of, let me say it this way, there's like this illusion of invincibility. We, so we, it's almost like this. We don't ever want to see death, think about our own death, because we're too busy living. The more I worry about death, the less time I have to live. YOLO. And there's this illusion of invincibility. Solomon says, be careful. Be careful. I love the way James says it in James chapter 4. He calls that person out. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, flip the home, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. What does Solomon say? It's vanity. It's vapor. It's there in the minute, and it's gone the next minute. Now, this is kind of a classic youth group verse. Like, if you were to leave youth group today, you know, and die, where would you go? It's, that's kind of like where this comes to a lot of the times. But sometimes it's good to dust that youth group talk off. 
and think about it ourselves and ask ourselves, man, am, am I thinking about my own mortality in the same healthy way that Solomon is? I mean, he's facing it head on. One breath, one life, it's a vapor. But the second thing he says about death as he's dealing with it is he speaks about the uncertainty of man's eternal destination. That's the second part. So, so the first is the reality of man's mortal condition. Through sin, death has entered this world. We were, we were created from the dust, now we return to the dust. But then he speaks about the uncertainty. This is the, the other difficulty he talks about. The uncertainty of man's eternal destination. He says, verse 20, all go to one place. Now we go to the dust. But notice what he says in verse 21. But who knows the spirit of the sons of men which go upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth. So I perceived, in light of this uncertainty, that nothing is better than that man should just rejoice in his work. You know, who knows what's going to happen. Enjoy your job, hopefully. That's what he says. For that is his heritage. That's all you really have. That's all you can inherit. You can't inherit any understanding of what to come afterwards. We don't really, nobody's, you know, we haven't been there yet, so we're here. So we don't know what's going to happen. Who, he says, who knows? It's uncertain. So the best thing you have to do is hopefully enjoy the one breath and the short life you have. Thank you, Solomon, for the pep talk, right? He says, notice this question at the end of chapter 3. This is such a key question. He says, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? The uncertainty of man's eternal destination. He goes, who, who knows? Who, who knows? Now, let's back up for a second and make an observation here. Solomon does seem to be certain of something pretty important here. Solomon, though he's uncertain of where he's going, Solomon has some certainty that he's going somewhere, doesn't he? He doesn't say, who knows if there's a spirit in my body that survives my physical body? Or he doesn't say, who knows if there's an afterlife? His question is, where is it? And what am I destined for? His question was more about the destiny. You see, Solomon understood, as did Hebrew understanding, that we are more as human beings than a physical life. And this is what, what changes everything when you start thinking about your life and what really matters. You see, as creatures of, uh, made in the very image of God, we are made with a greater dimension than just our physical bodies. There's a spiritual and a soul component to our being. It's, it's so central to who we are that the great C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. It's who you are. It's the essence of who you are. And Solomon says that with this understanding that though my body returns to the dust, there is who I am greater than this earth suit that continues on. And if you have ever been in the presence of someone who's passed from life to death, you know what I'm talking about when we talk about this. You've seen it. Have you seen this? I've seen this through family members. I, you know, I, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's very close to home. But, but I was, like, uncomfortable saying goodbye to my mom after she passed away because it wasn't her. Do you know what I mean? She was gone. Now, she was there, but she wasn't there. There is more to you than your physical body. Your decisions matter. You're a spiritual being made in the image of God. And listen, you don't need me to tell you this. You know it. Solomon told us last week that we all know it, didn't he? He said, God has actually put what in all of our hearts? Eternity. Every being that God has made, there is within them this knowledge that there's more to life than what meets the eye, and there's more to my life than my birth and my death. There is, you could say, an afterlife or an after death. There's a spirit. Now, uh, the Old Testament saints and Solomon himself had some understanding inspired by the Spirit of what that entailed. They, they called the place of, this, of the dead this, world, this word Sheol. Sheol, and it spoke of the place of the dead. Uh, and, and the scriptures talk repeatedly about the hope of God's people. David, even in a messianic psalm, said, You will not leave my soul in Sheol. That, that there's more to my destiny than 
just death. Um, and I think this is, again, an, an important thing for us to think about. Because today, there are so many sentiments about death that, you, you know, there's, there's no, like, shortage of, of some sort of false comfort. Like, I've, um, I've, probably the most praying I ever do in ministry is when God calls me to officiate a, a memorial service or a funeral. And now with the handfuls of memorial service I've, services I've officiated, I can tell you, I've heard all sorts of ideas about the afterlife. Um, you know, the common one is like, heaven gained another angel, right? Or I've heard like, I heard one was like, they've become a star now, and they are going to illuminate our night skies and stuff like that. And I've heard even in my own family, like stuff, ideas about, you know, they're watching over us. There's all these ideas, right? Even here's the most common. What is the most common thing that we post online when someone passes away? Rest in peace. RIP, rest in peace, right? Watch over us. You know, hopefully Tupac's watching over us. You hear that one a lot, right? You know what I mean? Like these, do you get where I'm at here? These sentiments about the afterlife and we're just kind of like acting like uh, maybe it's true. And Solomon's like, you don't know. How do you know? How do you know if, if you're going to rest in peace? How do you know where you're going to go? I mean, this is hard stuff, right? He's like, he's testing what we think we're so certain of. He's speaking to the uncertainty of man's eternal destination. Um, now, there's one level of uncertainty to not know what happens after you die. There's a greater level of uncertainty to know what follows human death and then to be uncertain of what happens to you then. The, the scriptures are very clear about what happens to those who die. It's Hebrews chapter 9, and it simply says this, that it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, judgment. Judgment. Uh, this is commonly referred to in theology. You get these ideas of the active or the passive wrath of God against sin. There is this sort of passive effect of God's judgment towards sin where he allows man to be given over to being their own gods and the self-destruction that that brings. That is God's wrath to let us be our own gods. Do we know that? That's not God's mercy. Hey, do your own thing. That's judgment. Okay. And the result, and one of the examples of this, of course, is, is death. But the scriptures are very clear about a time that is going to come at the end of all things, at the end of the age. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20. And Revelation chapter 20 describes the dead bringing forth its full company of people. And every human being who has died is going to stand before God. And you read all throughout the Gospels and you see that there is a dividing line in the sand, you could say, between this group of people. The righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked. Now, our problem, which is we're going to sit in this for a second, is the Bible says that none of us are righteous. In fact, at that judgment, what it says is going to happen is we're going to be judged according to our works. Like the things that we have done in this life, good, seemingly good or bad. There's a judgment coming. Judged according to our works. The truth of who we are and what we've done. And Solomon's saying, I don't really know what's going to happen there. Now, you see the uncertainty here. Now, you might think that that was a great volleyball set for like a really good answer, but we're going to hold that. Put a pin in that for a second. Where does that, if right now you go, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm not sure when I stand before God if he's going to greet me as, his, as a friend or as an, as an enemy. If he's going to greet me as a judge or as my father. So Solomon, he continues on this train of thought. He started with the reality of man's mortal condition. He moved to the uncertainty of man's eternal destination. And then he lands on this. It's the tragedy of man's hopeless situation. Like, the good news here is this is as deep as the pit gets. You know? I don't know if it's good news because it's still really dark down here, but 
Solomon says that this, this is where that uncertainty leads us. Chapter 4, he observes all the oppression of the earth. He goes, with that mortality, you just die, with the uncertainty of what happens, he, he looks around and he looks at the oppressors. And this was earlier last week, we talked about the worst kind of oppression, which is when those who are in, who are in positions of righteousness, they levy their position for wickedness. And they take advantage of and they exploit those who are weaker than them. And Solomon looks on those who have been exploited. Solomon is observing the injustice, the oppression of this world. And in light of there being mortality and uncertainty, he goes, where's the righteousness? You ever ask that? Where's the judgment? And this leads him to ask this question. Where's the comfort? Where is it? He says it this way. Who is going to wipe their tears, he says. I mean, without God, let's just put God over here for a second, okay? God's going to go right there for a second. Here we are. With just death and uncertainty, well, where's the justice? And this is where he is left in this hopeless situation. And again, look at the end of chapter 3. I want you to see this question one more time. Here's what it's, what it's rooted in. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? That's where it's at. We're going to die. Who knows what's going to happen? This is sad. This is a hopeless tragedy. The situation leaves the oppressed unvindicated. It leaves the wicked going free. They're just going to die with the, the person they oppressed. And at the end of the day, we, we don't know who's going to bring us. What comfort do we have? There's no comfort in life if there's no comfort in death, right? I mean, there's no comfort in my life if I have no comfort in death. The best I can do, he goes, here's the best advice that I could give you. At the end of at verse 22, he says, here's what I got. I perceive nothing better than just to try to, try to enjoy your life. Try to, try to enjoy it, I guess. You're going to die. You don't know what's going to happen. It's really sad. Make the best of it. I mean, putting God over here, that's the best you have, is it not? Hopefully you're not one of the people who are oppressed. I mean, think about the, the tragedy of this situation. And let's just say it this way. Man, if this was the only book of the Bible, holy cow. If this is where the story of God ended, how sad would our lives be? How sad would our lives be if this was the best advice we could get? Now, um, we here at Solus Church are followers of Jesus. Jesus. A lot of reasons behind that. Um, probably the one so significant is the fact that Jesus, this Jesus, you know Jesus this way? This Jesus has rescued us from this pit of despair. You see, it's true, and it's healthy for us to see how Solomon deals with death. But there's more to the story. You could write it down this way, because Jesus has dealt with death. Amen. Jesus has dealt with death. You see, we're all going to deal with death. Right now, some of you are thinking about that loved one that you've lost. And with, with everything Solomon has said, you're kind of like, why are we studying this book? And this is the reason. The reason is because Solomon asks a question to which Jesus is the answer. Notice again, who can bring him? Uh, you know, that's, I've read a lot of Bible commentators as I've been studying through this, and one of the things they said is, you know, what's unique about Ecclesiastes is you don't really see Jesus as much in Ecclesiastes. And I'm like, huh? I can't stop seeing him. He's in every dilemma. He's the solution to every problem. He's the answer to every question. He keeps showing up. As dark as Solomon leads us in death, 
Jesus' light is still brighter. Jesus, you see, Jesus has dealt with death. You know, one of the most iconic moments of Jesus dealing with death in his life. It, it was just like a, um, you know, death, cross, resurrection. We're going to get there. It's going to be awesome. But, you know, that was like the haymaker that Jesus was going to deliver to Satan's face and throat. And hurt him, okay? And early on, though, it's like Jesus gave him like an extra little gut punch. It's so cool. It's John 11. In John 11, Jesus is going to be the one to resurrect himself. He's not going to need any help. He's not going to need anybody to pray over. He's, going to, he's God. He has power over death. But, but as a little, you know, foreshadow to that, there's this incredible story where, where one of Jesus' best friends is sick. His name is Lazarus. And Lazarus was one of Jesus' close friends, along with Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. Yeah, Martha. And Mary and Martha come to Jesus. Jesus, Lazarus, the one whom you love, is sick. And Jesus, when he hears about this, the Bible says that he stayed where he was for two days. You ever had Jesus do that to you? You know? My bills are due tomorrow. It's like Jesus answered my prayer three days after my bills. But, you know, that's kind of, I'm not going to show up tomorrow. It's like, oh, well, it would be great. Um, and there was this very limited view, it seems like, of Jesus at that time. Like, in order for Lazarus' life to be spared, I mean, death is the great enemy. So, Jesus, the best you can do is keep him from death. Jesus goes, that's not the best I can do. So Jesus gets word that Lazarus dies, and what a beautiful display of the humanity of Jesus, the man of sorrows. He hears that Lazarus, his friend, has dead, and I just imagine Jesus connecting his death to the effect of sin in this world, the grievance of death. It's so foreign to humanity. So when Jesus finds out that Lazarus died, it says that he wept. Man, We should be like Jesus. We're not those that sorrow without hope. But let us not be Christians who hope, who hope without sorrow. The world needs us to feel what they're feeling. We need each other to hurt when we're hurting. We've got to rejoice when we're rejoicing, but we've got to learn to weep when we're weeping. If Jesus is going to cry over, over those that have died, and a lot of us, this has kind of been how we've dealt with death. It's like, oh, it's going to be okay. No. Sit in it for a second. Feel what Jesus feels. Feel what God feels. You know what I mean? It hurts. A lot of times what we do is we kind of, we reserve our grieving to a short period of time then we kind of move on, but there's something healthy about being alive emotionally to what hurts God. You with me? And so there's Jesus. He weeps and, and, and he feels the pain, but his emotions were not the indication of his power. Jesus shows up on the scene and at that point, Lazarus had, had already died, and his sisters are disappointed. And they say this to Jesus. This is, again, something probably we've all said. Jesus, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. Okay. We can feel that way, can't we? Because we, we tend to limit what our expectation of how God would work in our life would look like. If you would have done it this way, if you would have been here, this would have happened. And Jesus says, yeah, it could have happened, but that's not the best thing that would have happened. Because what's actually happened is going to manifest my glory in a new way. You're going to know me as not just the healer of sickness, but as the resurrection and the life. And with just a word to the grave and the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And the power of God displayed in Jesus Dealing with death, manifesting his power, throat punching the devil. And again, that was just a foreshadow because we know this, this same Savior that would raise Lazarus from his, from his death, this same Savior, listen to this. He would go to a cross and he would himself taste death. A lot of people ask this question, why is God so apathetic towards suffering in this world? And when you look at the cross, Tim Keller says, the one thing we can't say, 
It's not that he doesn't care. I, I don't know suffering, goodness of God, suffering in this world. It's here. There's an answer in the end. But when you look at the cross, you see a God who sympathizes with our weaknesses. You see a God who cared so much about the death that has ruined the beauty of his creation, the sin that has corrupted the unity of heaven and earth, that this God becomes a man. He, he does it for us, guys. You don't have to do it. He does it for you. He's righteous for you. He's righteous for me. He's without sin. As Pilate looks at me, he goes, I find no fault in him. And he goes and he dies. He takes upon himself the sting of death. Good Friday. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that through his sacrifice, you and I, we just get to reap the benefits of his grace. Thank you, Lord. No more working for God to love you, just responding to the fact that he does. Through Jesus, demonstrating that love, taking my sin, forgiving me of my sin. But you see, the sting of death, it's more than his death. You see, if Jesus were simply to die, well, he would just be any old promised preacher, any old prophet, any old wise sage. But Jesus was not just the Son of God. Jesus was God the Son. And so after three days, when they came to that tomb, there was no longer a body because Jesus overcame our enemy. I heard it told this way really beautifully on our behalf, overcoming death. You picture a father in a car with their child there in the front seat, and a bee flies in the car. All right? And they say, I'm not an insectologist or a, a biologist, or, yeah. But, I like, um, never mind. Um, they say that, you know, a bee has how many, how many stings? One, right? And after it stings, what happens? It dies. So, so picture in your head that bee flying into the car, and as it's about to sting the child, the father reaches out and absorbs that sting. He takes it in himself to shield his child from being stung. Is, there, is that not a picture of what Jesus has done on the cross and the resurrection? Here's the way that Hebrews says it so awesomely. Hebrews says, inasmuch as the children, that's us, have partaken flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, has likewise shared in the same, notice this, that through death, this is so cool, how did he beat up death? Through death. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release, what a great word, don't you like being released? Released those through the fear of death, who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is what Jesus has done. This is how Jesus has dealt with death on the cross. He defeated death with death. A great example of this in the Old Testament, you know the story of David and Goliath? This is fun, think about this, okay? Now, how did David kill Goliath? Now, the first blow, what was it? All right, it wasn't one of the, it was one of the, right? How did, Jesus, how did David finish Goliath? Whose sword? Come on. How did Jesus defeat Satan? Jesus cut off Satan's head with his own sword. The one weapon that Satan has in our face is that we, no matter how hard we try, listen, we cannot overcome death on our own because we're sinners. But Jesus said, don't worry, I'll do it for you because I'm not a sinner. I'm holy. And my sacrifice will be a sufficient payment for your sin. So much so that I will take the enemy's sword and I will chop off his own head. I will defeat death with death. I, I love the way it says it in uh, the message version. It says, by embracing death, Taking it into himself, Jesus destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. That's awesome. New life verse. I get a new one every day, just so you know. Um, taking it in himself, victoriously rising from the grave. 
This is Jesus, who again, he said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So, so here's what we got. We have Solomon dealing with death, and those first 30 minutes were depressing, okay? Solomon dealing with death. Going, well, I, hopefully you have a good life. And then you have how Jesus has dealt with death. And now start to think about this. Think about the implications of what that means for me and you. Think about what we said. Think about the reality of your mortal condition. What does Jesus' dealing with death do for your and my mortal condition? Our physical body, here's the the bad news, I guess. We're still going to die physically. These bodies are still temporary. But what Jesus has done through his resurrection is he's provided this new template. But in him, he says it this way, though you die, you're going to live. You're going to live. It tells us this, way, this in 2 Timothy 1.10. It says that Jesus Christ, he's abolished death. And he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So, so we understand it this way, that it's through one man, Adam, that death came through sin. But even so, by another man, capital M, hello, Even so came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, are you in Adam or Christ? For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Alive. You see, there's a resurrection coming. The Bible says this way in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortality is going to put on immortality. This weakness is going to put on strength. The Bible talks about this great hope of a renewed, a restored, a resurrecting, physical, real body. I know a lot of us, we think about heaven as sort of like bye-bye, pie in the sky, creepy little angel baby things, playing the same you know, three chords on a harp. Like, no, no. In Revelation, you get this picture of not us being beamed up to somewhere there, but you get the, the bride, it's described, the, the, the heavens and the earth coming together as one, this beautiful unity. There's flesh and, and blood. There's, there's bone. There's, there's this beautiful picture of resurrection, of redemption, of new life. And here's what 2 Corinthians says about it. I love it. It says, for we know that if our earthly house, okay, that's this, this body, he calls it a tent, that's, what we, that's the best we got here. You live in Boca? It's just a tent. It's just a tent, okay? This earthly house, this tent, whether it's a 4-3, a 4-2, you know, white picket fence, pool. When it's destroyed, this tent, he says, we have a building from God, not a tent, but a house. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. You ever felt that groaning? the different weaknesses we've grown through. How many of you guys are ready for your body to be done with temptation? Anybody? How many of us are ready for our bodies to be done with weakness and exhaustion? I revel in the day when the body is done with cancer. No more cancer. No more. There's a building coming. We're groaning for it. We're longing for it. Jesus, he deals with our death by solving the problem of our mortal condition. He resurrects us. He reverses the curse. And I love it. It says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. I wish I had the reference up there. But it says that just as we have borne the image of this man of dust, we know what it's like to bear that image of Adam, don't we? There is a day coming where we will bear the image of a heavenly man. We're going to bear his image. This great hope of resurrection. I think of friends I've had, um, family members I've had that are disabled, they're physically disabled, have limitations, and it's that great hope of seeing them one day dancing in heaven. This great hope. Jesus does more than our mortality, dealing with our mortality. He deals with our, our, our uncertainty when it comes to our destiny. He's the resurrection and the life. So yeah, he gives us a new body, but he gives us a new place to go to with that body. Okay? Uh, and Jesus spoke all about this um, in, in his 
in his time with his disciples, especially towards the end of his life, right? Hey, don't be tr- I'm going away, but, but do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I told you this because here's the deal. I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Preparing a place for you. Isn't that awesome? You ever think about that? You ever owned that personally, that God is preparing a place for me with him, with you in mind? He's making room for you. He's making it comfy. He's tailoring it to you. And the disciples, they ask this question, uh, well, Jesus, I love Thomas, how do we know where you're going? And how do we get there? Two key things, directions and the destination. Okay. And Jesus goes, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No man comes to the Father, that's where he's going, to the Father, except through me. This is, by the way, what Jesus came to give us with security. We asked this question earlier. When we stand before that judgment seat and that line is drawn between the wicked and the righteous, we said, which side are we going to be on? And I want to say it this way. There's either the side of Adam or the side of Jesus. Like, by the way, when we get to heaven, it's not like who was good and who was bad. These were the good ones. Oh, how much did you come to church? Not enough. Sorry. You? Good. Get in. Oh, you served? Special place for you. Okay. You didn't sign up for the pumpkin patch? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. I'm just kidding. There's no point system in heaven. You can split up all of humanity in two categories at the end of the age. Those who are repentant and those who aren't. Those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus as the one who did it all for them or the self-righteous and the unrighteous who decided to be their own savior. Jesus said, I am the way. Isn't that good news? He doesn't say, here, let me show you the way. Here's how you get there. I'll meet you there. That's the best, right? You pull over. Jesus, I need directions. He jumps in the car and he says, get out of the driver's seat. I'll take you there. I'll take you there because you can never get there on your own. You don't have enough holiness in you. You don't have enough time in you. But Jesus does. Can I say Jesus is a much better way to get to heaven than anything else you're trying? He's the only way. And, And this is, by the way, People go, that's so exclusive. No, it's so merciful. Why would God do that? Listen, it's not crazy that there's only one way. It's crazy there's a way. Because we've turned our backs on God. We deserve to stand before a judgment seat of a God that we have intentionally turned away from. We've brought the destruction on ourselves, but this is the display of who this God is. And here's what I want us to know about this uncertainty of man's eternal destination. Um, the one thing, listen, the one thing that I pray you are not is uncertain in regards to where you're headed. An eternity with God or eternity apart from him in what's called hell or Hades. Jesus spoke of Hades often, hell often. And it's not just like good people up there, bad people down there. I mean, the depiction of hell in the Bible is not an up-down idea, but it's an inside-out idea. It's the party and the one who's cast on the outside. Jesus spoke of a representation of this in his time. was a place called Gehenna, where the fire keeps burning. And it's outside, where, where, where we are left in our own garbage to self-destruct in and of ourselves with God's active and both passive wrath. Because God is good, by the way, Because God is preserving the peace. We're going to see that for all of eternity. So he's going to take all that's evil and put it over here. And Tim Keller says it this way about the gospel. What the gospel says through Jesus is that God has come through Christ to end evil and suffering without having to end us. Let evil and suffering be ended without you. Let your sin be dealt with on the cross. Look to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And listen, 
with certainty, okay? And that certainty is not based upon, well, how much fruit are you bearing? Are you sure you're safe? Like, get out of here with that crap, bro. I know a tree is known by its fruit, but we are not saved by our fruit. We're saved by Jesus' fruit. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by Jesus' work. You've got to process this stuff. This is what, what John says. These things I have written to you, this is all throughout the Bible, you who believe, there's the word, it's faith, it's apart from works, it's trusting in Jesus fully in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may hope that maybe you have eternal life. We'll see. As Solomon says, who knows? No, that you may know. Anybody in here know where they're headed? There's nothing like knowing. There's nothing like knowing. There's nothing like assurance. And so many of us, we're wasting our Christian lives uncertain of what's to come, man. I'll tell you, there, there's nothing that will rev your engine afresh like knowing that God has you and has you forever. You, you stop wasting trying, time trying to work for what Jesus already did. Hello. And you go, what he did's better. I give up. <laughs> I'm going to rest in his grace and forfeit my works to be righteous in Jesus. When he comes, may I be found with a righteousness that's not of my own, but holy in Jesus. And this is where Jesus sets us free with this great hope that we are no longer stuck in the tragedy of man's hopeless situation because as Jesus came alive, so did hope. As Jesus came alive, so did hope. Now, I know this is like an Easter message, but come on, as the, for the Christian, it's Easter every day. You with me? Every day. It's Easter today. Amen? Because Jesus is alive today. Amen? And guess what? Through Jesus being alive, though we die, we're going to live. Amen? With a resurrected body, with a certain destiny with him forever. And what that brings is the opposite of Solomon's conclusion, which is without that, there's no hope. But through what Jesus has done, there is great hope. Guys, there is such great hope. He says it this way in 1 Thessalonians. It was a church that was, they had lost a lot of people, had died, they'd passed away. And they're like, man, are my loved ones, am I going to see them again? I'm just kind of uncertain. And, and you know, what's going to happen to me when I die? And I love uh, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. This is not something in the Christian faith that you should be unsure of, that you should be in the dark in. Okay? And there's a lot to know in the Christian faith. Start here. That through Jesus, you can be confident that those who have fallen asleep, you don't have to grieve in a way that you did before Jesus. You see, you don't sorrow as those who have no hope as you did. For if we believe, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Sometimes you don't know what it's like to cling to this verse until it's all you have. It's walking through the valley of the shadow of death where I just go, Lord, I really want to see my mom again. I really do. And I believe, I, I pray, God, you would increase my faith. God, I believe, help my unbelief that I am going to really hug her one day. I really am. I believe that. I miss my mom. But I have hope. I have hope. that It's not just going to be some weird, vague movie thing. That we're going to be together in a way that we never were. She's going to meet my kids. I mean, I don't want to go on this tangent here because you'll lose me. But, man, there's nothing like that assurance, guys. The story doesn't end with Solomon. It continues and rises through Jesus. And man, there's no better place to end than the end here. So Revelation 21, here's what tells us what's coming. I'm going to invite the band out here. And we're going to close with this song, just rejoicing in this truth. But look at what Revelation 21 says. It says that God is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Solomon says, who's there to wipe their tears? Revelation says, Jesus is going to be there. The oppressed, the downtrodden, the forgotten, those who died too soon, those who died unexpected, those that didn't even get a chance at life, God is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There is going, do you believe this? I want to believe this. There's, there's a day coming, no more death. No more death. No more. 
like kicked out the door, banished forever. Goodbye, death. Jesus reigns here. You don't have a word here because Jesus cut your own head off, right? With your own sword. No more death, nor sorrow, no crying. Andrew won't be a weeping willow anymore, okay? Because there will be no more pain. The former things are passing away and God's going to say, behold, I am doing a new thing here. This is a new thing. This is the restoration of all things where the sin had a loud word. It doesn't have the final word because Jesus is alive. And for all of us who are dealing with death in one way or another, we can sorrow. We need to sorrow, but we don't sorrow as those without hope. A king's alive. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.